So you're just back from Peru. I am. Um, I've been going for probably about the last 20 years. So I, I normally take groups of people there um, to see the sacred sites. And what's lovely is Puma and his family, who I've worked with the whole time, and I originally worked um, with Puma's grandfather, um, is that I really trust their team. I know anyone going out there is going to come back safely. But uh, so it's interesting. We talk about these different cross-cultural situations with whether you're an indigenous shaman or whether you're a Westerner who's, you know, done a weekend or various forms of training and all of the, the elements in between that and those areas. So here was a situation where I am in Peru um, with Peruvian shamans and yet the Peruvian shaman asked me to initiate this um, gentleman who had arrived into Wichuma and San Pedro. So actually, it was really nice to have the acknowledgement in reverse of, well, you know, I know you do it, you can do this, you know, I'm not around, I'm actually pretty busy, you go and do it kind of thing. Wow. Which was, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was an honor. And it's also, I mean, but I've worked for that, you know, I haven't, I've been walking this path a long time, but it was lovely to have the recognition and that free flow of, yeah, even because, you know, often, especially as a white woman going into that scenario, I often feel less than, even though I have trained deeply for years in these practices um, in comparison. So yeah, it was a, it was a nice experience. And it went well. What does it consist of then, uh, initiation in, in such parts? Is it, sorry, I didn't hear the question. What does initiation consist well, of then in such parts? In, in different ways. I mean, initiation, I mean, this is again, another one of those things that we often get wrong. We often think of, oh, we're initiated. You know, we've got, we've got it. We've reached the echelons, the, the epitome. But of course, initiation is just the beginning. It's, it's what allows us to walk through the gateway of the liminal space that allows us to cross the threshold from one state into another. It's the it's not mastery. It's the beginning of the process. And so it was literally introducing, if you like, um, in a sacred way through ceremony, uh, and through conversation and dialogue, plus all of the ceremonial components, introducing this person into that medicine, introducing them to the plant, if you like, and to the consciousness of that plant and the ways that one can work with that plant. But it was just the beginning of his journey. But it's if you get, it's like we've lost so much, isn't it? I mean, I know this is a bigger conversation that's been, um, going on in many circles recently of how we in particularly in Western culture, we've lost our rites of passage. You know, we don't have those big initiations from childhood into adulthood. Um, even, you know, like various stages of the life, you know, if we took if we looked after our birth processes and our death processes better, I think we'd all probably um, live better lives in between those two states. Whereas, yeah, you know, sure. I mean, I we, guess, yeah, kids these days, it's it's just very fragmented, isn't it? Start yeah. playing for a local football team at seven, go to middle school at 11, discover Pornhub at 12. Yeah, and that's it, adult. you're done. Yeah, and, and you're, you're done for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. And so an initiation in this way of introducing to a plant, it can, it can be like a rite of passage. It can start that journey of discovery and curiosity, but it's, it's not the end point, it's the beginning point. Yeah, for sure. And do you go to Machu Picchu before or after? 
I well, I I did go to Machu Picchu this time. I have to say, I I went back on my own kind of sort of uh, whatever I you know vow I made because I was very very blessed. And um, when I first went to Peru, I actually got to spend the night in a cave in Machu Picchu, like with wow. some crazy shamanic um, shenanigans going on in the dark. Like literally, Puma stuck me in a cave on my own on um, with Puma medicine and said okay, mommy, don't move till I come and get you. And it's like, I mean, I was very inexperienced at the time. It's pitch black. I had no, like, stuff's coming out the walls at me and I'm going, is he ever coming back? Am I here for the rest of my life? Um, and it was some hours later because there was some dark shaman playing and literally we're playing hide and seek, shamanic hide and seek in Machu Picchu. So, and we kind of walked down in the early hours of the morning and it was all blissful and lovely. And so now every time I've gone, there's a little bit less that you're allowed to visit. You know, another site or another initiation chamber has been closed down or roped off. And I think what did it for me is when they made it all one way. And you're just like shuffling around, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the person in front and the iPhones and people that are not really understanding what the nature of the site is about at its deeper level. Um, but funny enough, so all of that, I did go back this year because um, the group I was taking really wanted to. And it was actually wonderful. And I don't know if like post pandemic, because the, the energies have been allowed to settle and because they've actually taken, you know, there seemed less people and it it the energy felt really pristine and good so yeah i did go back for a, a revisit but i haven't been for a few years so it was lovely amazing you must tell us though what a game of shamanic hide and seek really <laughs> consists of and who this puma chap is well puma freddie um kispi singora he's um singoma he's now kind of pretty well known um, because he has through the pandemic become much more global and on you know the, these wonderful technology things that we have nowadays so he's part of shift network but i've known him and his family and he's you know his grandfather was the altar messiah the higher shamanic priest of chinchero region which is um a, a town just outside of cusco about 40 minutes drive outside of cusco so that whole kind of region and Puma is his grandson and Puma, like Puma's father was very anti-shamanism and, and it's interesting because this is in the prophecies. So Puma's father is kind of my generation, my age, and it's almost like, and there's a few um, people I know, Westerners, uh, the people I trained with, um, friends of mine, we all kind of turned up and did that sort of trait, almost like filled in the gap of Puma because Puma's father was really uninterested. Um, he wanted more Western things, wanted a sort of normal job with that shamanic stuff, you know, let's get rid of that kind of thing. But Puma, the grandson, um, was the one that had the true, you know, in effect, like shamanic initiation of being struck by lightning in a ditch when he was six and his great grandmother had a dream about him and rescued him from that situation. And his grandfather actually trained him in secret because the family were really anti it. And he has inherited that shamanic wisdom from his grandfather and taken it further because this is the thing with shamanism shamanism is an evolutionary tool it's not it's not uh stuck within its boundaries not able to grow it's a living teaching which is why it's oral mostly because each generation and each evolution as it passes through it adapts and it changes to its environment and its cultural specifics for the time that it is born into absolutely wow what a story 
and they use as their sacrament the wachuma plant, they the do. San Pedro you, they, cactus, yes, which is, which is again, a psychedelic, slightly but, milder than peyote for, for those who are listening and who are yeah. unaware. Yeah, but again, that's changing. So yes, um, when I worked with grandfather 20 years ago, only wachuma in the mountains in the Andean culture. Um, but now um, Puma is a fully trained ayahuasquero. Um, he, we, we both shared the same teacher, Don Pandora, who's sadly passed now. Um, and again, it's like we are seeing the explosion in the West of all the different medicines, plants coming in, even within like Peru, for example, Peru is the place I know most about. It's like the, the jungle medicines are coming up to the mountain and the mountain medicines are coming down to the jungle. So even now where the never the twain shall meet, they are all merging and different shamans are becoming versed in different plants. So it's quite interesting, this explosion, isn't it? And I have various, I don't know what your thoughts on why now, why this explosion, I mean, apart from the consciousness of humanity needs it. On one we like, God, we really do need to wake the hell up and just notice what we're doing and in our disconnect to nature and all of that. But it's interesting in some ways, like if one of my thoughts on this, and I don't know where you think about going on this, is like, in a sense, because we've destroyed or are destroying the Amazon, as we've cut down the Amazon, the genie's been let out of the forest in a way. You know, it, it feels like these ancient tribes were just doing their thing in the depths of the jungle, keeping the consciousness of humanity or the world or Gaia consciousness alive. And then, you know, as it's been chopped down, it's like the spirits had to escape to hopefully wake enough people up to start protecting it again. Who knows? But yeah, it I remember we spoke... a little bit like that. Because I remember we spoke earlier down. this year from my psychedelics.com piece and you suggested that it was the ayahuasca medicine and a, a plan that had already been etched oh, long well, ago. That, I think that practice. was Terence McKenna who used that term originally, wasn't it? The plan of the plants for the planet. There is definitely something in that. Uh, but it is curious, I, you know, that it feels like we wouldn't really have ever known. I don't know if this would have emerged in the same way if we hadn't been so destructive in our, you know, taking down of deforestation processes and things. Yeah, it's curious. Every every cloud has a silver lining, I suppose. But well, is it? Except the people that are, yeah, living in these, yeah, awfully polluted and have been uprooted. Yeah, it's just dreadful. Yeah, so it's 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 just changing. Um, but yes, I hope the I hope the shift. But again, I also look at other cycles. So another cycle that I see in this because I study like Chinese astrology, and in Chinese astrology, just looking at different timelines, it has a sixty-year cycle, because there's twelve animals and five elements. So creating so you only kind of really come you know, like in Chinese that you have your first birthday when you're 60 it's the only time when your animal and element come back together and that's curious as well because of course you know if we're looking at an equivalent timeline we're now in the 60s so there's a res it's not the 60s but there is a resonance of this decade that is similar to the 60s and can we not see that and it's and I'm curious about how this will develop. So we can see in all the new psychedelic research that's happening now, you know, and that and it's exactly what happened in the '60s. There was masses of psychedelic research, mostly with obviously it's different, you know, um, substances. It was more LSD then, and now it's more MD, MDMA and psilocybin that is getting the funding. But again, that popularity. But what concerns me, of course, what 
sort of took it down into very draconian drug laws that we're still under the influence of at the end of the 60s was um, really Timothy Leary. He was the figurehead of that, you know, this very charismatic character that took it beyond what, you know, governments and people that like to control us could deal with. So they cut it, they slammed it down very, very quickly. But so I'm curious as to what might emerge, particularly next year in that in that level of the potential for something that's really opened up on another level to be closed down again. Yes, well, it's certainly the stage is set for seemingly, yeah, wider liberalisation of drug laws and research parameters but who knows never say never do you do you think there's a modern day equivalent of timothy well i think that well i'm curious because i do i watch these 60 year cycles and there's a lot you know it's like even in the beginning of the 60s was the vietnam neocon sort of situation and then of course beginning of this decade we have ukraine war so there's a lot of similar you know they're different Of course, they're different contexts, but there are similarities. Like, for example, we had a brief conversation before we started this recording about festivals in the UK this summer. Like suddenly there's a lot of conscious turned on festivals. It's getting bigger. You know, everyone, you know, now you can be in your local supermarket and hear somebody casually mentioning the word ayahuasca. I mean, you know, know, 20 years ago, it's like nobody had ever talking about. They're talking about five MEO DMT on on television in this Ted Lasso series. He's he's like driving the bus of this football team and he says he's had a shit day. So he's going to go home and smoke some bufo to make sure that, you know, (laughs) he at least does something decent today. Exactly. So that. I can see the same energy coming. I don't know if it will be, you will get another figurehead like Timothy Leary, where the one character will emerge to be the one that, you know, becomes the charismatic sort of, as I say, leader of this movement, but it could just be the movement itself this time. But I do think we're in potential danger zone in these next few years and that there needs to be more kind of conscious attention to keeping things safe, basically, because, you know, as we know um because i think there's so much good that can be done in mm-hmm. both therapeutic um tribal or ceremonial context shall we say indigenous context and through medical contexts of people that would never go that but would feel safe to come into a therapeutic use of psilocybin yeah. under but, medical help and of course yeah there's a big network of underground ceremonies in the uk which are kind of increasingly i guess noticeable like they're not using necessarily telegram channels right i mean it's it's still secret but maybe it's not as secretive as it was and, and yeah one wonders if if there was sadly some sort of yeah challenging event that passed at one of this and and gained attention what would happen well, it's already beginning to happen. I mean, I'm actually, uh, I am actually talking to some of the elders in the medicine community at the moment, and we are sort of organising ourselves to kind of, you know, bring some um, ethics or codes of ethics, or try to bring safe practices into that, because basically, it's ultimately about safety um, of, mm-hmm. you know, consumers as well as facilitators. Because and- a lot of people are trying to become, in inverted commas, shamans or medicine people these days aren't they and maybe with very very little training are are putting on retreats and ceremonies and and the like 
Yes, there is. Um, and it is and it is dangerous. And that is where the danger is going to come from. There's already been like a, a Daily Mail expose earlier this year on some guy, I can't remember his name, where the, the journalist went in and exposed the ceremony and it was appallingly run. And, you know, and it's always going to go for those very sort of dramatic, uncontrolled and then all the good work that is done and very well held with very experienced people that do take care gets ignored, unfortunately, because they are better at keeping under the radar because they have better protocols in place absolutely and yeah we have today on the topic of medicine people pajes shamans from latin america traveling the world and th this is something that's only really emerged in the last five to ten years hasn't it yeah and again, there's there's good and bad in all of these things. It's just where does it end up and where is the sort of the sweet spot that keeps people safe, keeps people because I do think it's ultimately I do think it's a force for good. I sure. do think it, I do think it awakens people's awareness of, you know, predominantly their connection with nature and just reconnecting with the natural world and realizing that we are not separated and that you know what we do to our planet is directly relational with what we're doing to ourselves that awareness does come and, and we need that because um you know we are in a critical state in so many systems and areas of our lives currently i mean it's quite interesting i mean i was talking to puma about this while i was out in peru like things like about plastic and also, you know, because you go out in the ploughed fields and then you'll just find all the plastic shit and you go in these beautiful places, sacred sites, and there's just plastic rubbish. And I was talking to him about things like that. And his view is that we are just simply the last generation, that we're this generation that is composting all of this awful stuff and that the big shift will come in the generations to come, that we're just the ones that are having to sort of wake up and clean up, basically. We're the, we're the transition tribe. Yeah, we are the yeah, nice, nice phrase. Yeah, we are the transition tribe. And so it's not easy because this stuff is not, you know, and he said, well, plastic comes from Pachamama, ultimately, which of course is true of anything on this earth. It's all come from the way we have put components together. Some of those make more toxic than others. And there's interesting research coming through on how fungi can yeah. degradate, deteriorate, whatever. Yeah, plastic. And even 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 in the ocean, there's also it seems perhaps fish that are learning to eat the plastic. I mean, then there's maybe problematic if we start eating those fish that are full of plastic, but we're already yeah, full interesting of plastic. how the natural world responds to all of these I things. Mean, yeah, I mean, I think there was some, there was some study I was um, reading where literally in the most remote part, unvisited mostly by the humans, apart from the odd researcher goes there, into the deepest Amazon basin and literally finding microplastics in the ants there. Gosh. I mean, that's how far it's penetrated. Yeah. And it's and it's sad, you know, it's like I've I've been on a boat down the Amazon and it looks on the surface pristine and perfect, and you can't see any of the sort of human wreckage. But you've only got to dredge that riverbank a little bit or wait till the water goes down and see the plastic in the mud. And, you know, it's all just there under the surface. But what you were suggesting just before is that there's a coming utopia. I Well, because I'm an optimist, I'm a cup half full kind of person. And all the prophecy, you see, it's a fascinating. Again, all the prophecies point to this, you know, all the prophecies. Oh, the talk the about eagle them. and the condor. Yeah, and also the golden age. And even like in 
Peruvian, like the Andean cosmology, they, like, as I talked about my generation before, with, you know, they literally said, we have to come down from the mountains and teach the West. And Puma's very much, um, you know, like, yeah, I need to spread this message to anyone that will hear it. I'm open to it. It doesn't matter whether you're proving or not. I will share this with anyone that shows up and is willing because we need to get this out there. So there is that. Um, but it's funny because if you think about the ancestors dreaming of which we are at the time, they could have just simply be seeing the explosion of population because there's just so many, you know, more of us now. So in there, like they would have thought, yeah, we can't fight anything. There's a tiny band of us and we're fighting a big oppositional force. Now that's actually switched where there's a huge amount of us <laughs> fighting a tiny little oppositional force, but that oppositional force is pretty powerful. And they may have just seen that golden age as well, there's so many people, surely they're gonna wake up, surely they're gonna, you know, realize their conscience and do something about this and realize they don't have to be controlled in quite the same way. But I'm not sure that that is working in quite the way they may have dreamt it at the time we'll see what happens so, so what force are we up against exactly well just in terms of there is you can see it is that i don't think there is some great global conspiracy in terms of that but we can see that with and it's it's i would say it's more to do with the astrology of the aquarian age right we talk about and this is an interesting concept so we talk about I mean, age of aquarius yeah, and that that is very much about philanthropy, humanitarian, cooperative collaboration between community and it's community orientated, it's decentralized, etc. But there is a, always a shadow side. And the shadow side of the Aquarian age is cold, hard tech totalitarian control that is of benefit to all beings. And we're already but, seeing that in some places in a really explicit way. I mean, much is made about the use of the social credit scores in China and everything. Yeah. And yeah, while it, it seems they've obviously had a massive increase in the standard of living there and, you know, even over a couple of generations, I mean, similar, similarly, we've had that in the UK, I suppose. Um, not, not much change in the last 20 years, mind you, but yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to get lost in, you know, I'm sat in the countryside in Devon here and, yeah, it seems seems like just for a few tweaks, everything could be pretty great. But yeah, much of the world, there needs to be really, really system systematic change. Just not just in the immediate vicinity of, pe of people in their daily life for, for them to really, yeah, have the good life. Yeah, and I do think the only way for me because it's too it's too unwieldy. You know that if we really kind of get into the meta level of the systemic issues that are on the planet at the moment i mean i don't think there are any simple answers i think there are some brilliant solutions and i think basically humanity has all the solutions but you know we always have to i'm sure you know follow the money and we all know how solutions that exist and that would be very very beneficial are not always allowed to um reach the light of day and so there is, you know, it's, it's power interests, isn't it? So power dynamics, who's got who's got the deepest pockets, the biggest money and the, the loudest voice is going to get something. Part It's not whether there's some great, you know, global light and dark spirit, although people talk about a spiritual war and it can certainly feel like that now. I don't know whether it is as simple as that. It is just simply there has been ways in recent years of people to make extreme amounts of money and have extreme influence in a way that was not possible even i don't know 20 30 years ago yeah i think with the financialization 
of the economy, especially in the West well, and, and elsewhere, it's ingrained like profit motive into, into many of our psyches. Mm-hmm. And again, it's out of that psyche. It's, you know, I call it the false profit because it really is the best definition. And it is this continual, it's like, you know, profit at all cost. Everything has to be that linear forward going trajectory. And of course, nature doesn't work like that. And as we were saying earlier about these psychedelic ceremonies, some of them have, you know, increased in value, well, and and cost in recent years. I guess there's inflation as well in the UK, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm aware of some that are really rocketing in price. Yeah, the prices have gone up to a kind of crazy level. I I have quite a lot of conversations about this with people that are wanting, you know, like saying, you know, it's now become elitist, that it's now um, the cost is a barrier to people being able to access these um, ceremonies. And yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I don't know where the right answer, I mean, the answer, I don't believe in the huge sort of 50 60 70 people necessarily shamanic a and e ceremonies as i call them um (laughs) you know because yeah for them to be at that high level but when you're working in small groups and also you have to understand that you know as we know it's underground um supplies are not easy to come by they get lost often they get you know so they money is used up in those ways in in ways that people often when they turn up for a ceremony and think my god i was only here for a couple of nights and this is all i got kind of thing don't actually realize that there's all the potentially if it's well done all the integration interviews all the pre-interviews as i say the cost of flying in supplies that then sometimes go awol and then you have to repay for them etc etc so there are certainly hidden costs but i do also believe that things are being escalated out of proportion currently yeah, I even had a little delivery go missing the other day. We had the suspicion that it was a smart postie. <laughs> then I hope he had a good time. <laughs> yeah, certain, certainly do. I guess he needed it more than me. Exactly, exactly. And so you mentioned about these integration interviews after the after the ceremonies. I know that some some folks, and I talk about this a lot, don't offer these services as part of like a weekend retreat package obviously you do tell us a bit about yeah what that consists of and and what actually you know weekend review would consist of as well yeah um so yeah I would always pre-interview people I I do I mean I'm really kind of because this is the way I like to work so I have a very high ratio of team to person um, literally one to two. So I normally have five team and 10 participants, which I know is what, you know, that is way beyond what is recommended. But I'm also interested in people. I like people. Um, I'm not interested in a room full of strangers that I'm not going to know at the end of the weekend. I, I'm much more interested in really working with people at a deep level with their psyche, and it becomes more like a family. And also that creates um, a good level of trust and safety within that setting. So yeah, I would always, you know, a lot of the work will be with people that I might work regularly with. So I know them pretty well anyway. Um, But we'll normally take a few newcomers into each situation. And then obviously, I would never end a weekend without an integration circle as part of the process. So we always have that gathering where, you know, we talk about what's happened and the experiences because it is, I think that for me is where it starts integration starts because as you're aware you know 
everybody has a different experience every single time. And hearing, if you're very new to that, hearing other people's experience and realizing the diversity of the experience that can happen can be really beneficial for just somebody putting their their own sort of um, time into context. So that can be really beneficial. It triggers things because we forget a lot what happens and then hearing somebody else's explanation go, oh yeah, that's what happened to me. And also it gives me a chance as a facilitator to offer all the things that I think are useful for post-ceremony integration, you know, like sort of body work, eating good food, not going straight back into mainstream media, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then what we don't offer, unless there's somebody I'm concerned about or something's come up that I feel they need specific help, but we are like anybody can call me anytime. It's that is what I offer as afterwards. It's not that I'm going to go right on Thursday at three, we have this session unless I feel that is required, but I, but it is open. And anyone that works with me, it is open for them to come. But, you know. Yeah. That's well, that's, that, yeah, that's very good. I suppose, yeah, some retreats, yeah, offer a very structured four-hour one-on-one session subsequently, maybe with a third-party therapist. What, what do you make of those? Yeah, I think I think anybody that gives that integration is, is, is good in my book. It, it definitely needs – because – because you know we've all heard it like oh ayahuasca told me um so it's like you know and somebody unexperienced you know we give a lot of power to these plants and to the consciousness of the plant and of course these plants are do have a powerful consciousness but it's more to do with they are a consciousness you can dialogue with rather than you are just going to take everything they you know like i'm not going to take everything you say as fact i'll question it like you'll question me and what i say you know you're not going to just assume that that is correct the same with the plants we need to question and we need to go okay so the plant told me this well you know and also the plant consciousness might have a different timeline to the human consciousness timeline in terms of when you do that as well so i think there's also a great deal to be said about advising people not to take um strong crazy uh make strong crazy life changes immediately after a ceremony for example, I don't think there's enough spoken about that. And I see a lot of fallout from people doing that. What sort of stuff? Well, like somebody like going done. home and telling their partner, that's it, I'm done with you. Or, you know, like, right, we need a divorce or I'm moving country or, you know, whatever, I'm leaving my job. I mean, big life changes. And, it, you know, we have to, I always try to counsel people in ceremony to see particularly with grandmother like ayahuasca to really see it like a dream to work with it like a dream as a as a metaphor and symbolic process like a dream would be you know you might act on your dream that you get but you might analyze that and see what it's showing you and wouldn't necessarily just go and change your life because of it although having said that i have actually done that myself so <laughs> oh gosh what did you do i mean i i got a tattoo once of of pachamama on my chest because i, I had a sort of communion with her during one of the ceremonies. Yeah, what and how long do? did you wait before you had that tattoo? Oh, like two days. Yeah, that. So I would it have. I, it was excruciating. I should add. Yeah, and I, I definitely would have counselled you about waiting for a good three weeks, a month before, and see if you still felt that you really wanted that tattoo. I think that's pretty close. I mean, do you love it? And did it work? Yeah, well? I really, really like this tattoo. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't, wouldn't change it for the world. Maybe one or two of my tattoos. 
I'm not like totally delighted with now, but it, I guess it just reflects where I was at in a certain moment. And if whether it was like an impulse or something, you know, more profound that, that led me to to go about it. And it's not that you will not take those actions. It's about giving time and space to it. Because I normally, you know, things come up about, you know, if it's saying leave your job, it's certainly telling you, right, okay, if that was happening in a dream, then okay, there's something in my job that's not in alignment with me. And I need to look at that. But I'm not going to just, you know, quit my job tomorrow and put my situation, potentially my family in a sit where we can't pay the bills, I'm going to at least plan that or look at it or consider it or can I change it? Can I, you know, do it a different way? Luckily, I've not actually had a full time job ever. Good pretty pretty much <laughs> so I've, I've just been yeah getting getting scraps together perpetually but but so what what big life shift did you do then no, I that was actually from a dream that was actually from a dream oh obviously. no medicine yeah so I actually had a dream to I was at the time I was writing a syndicated astrology column for about 200 local newspapers and I had this dream that basically you have to find your father and you need to give up this astrology column and normally I would have just, you know, and, and basically I did, and two days late or two weeks later, rather, sorry, two weeks later, I did find my father and it was, oh, and, it, and it was relevant weirdly in a very odd way to the astrology column because it was brilliant because I only knew, I wouldn't have found him without the internet and I only knew his name and uh, his star sign, which is amusing because his star sign, I love what, you know, women know about men. Um, <laughs> really the relevant things here, name and star sign. Anyway, um, he Maybe always- Louis Busby, Sagittarius. <laughs> Guilty as charged. And um, actually his star sign was not the one that I had been told. So he obviously thought that was sexier at the time he met my mum or something. It was a different star sign, but what I'd written for that, and of course it's only a you know populist astrology column, you're only going to get the headlights, the flavor of it, but it was absolutely um, precedent in terms of him discovering this uh, long lost secret. I wow, what what was he was he a reader of like the Grantham Express or something and stumbled? No, across... no, he didn't see it. He didn't see it. I showed it to him. He was really mystic Davina's column. Yeah, it was, but it was just like you're going to get some news. This will, it will completely change your life, which of course um, my arrival did for him. And um, so it was, it was just quite interesting how that kind of worked out. And that was that was from a dream. So I did, act, I didn't take any time to act on that. <laughs> and, and so you were estranged from him at birth. He didn't know I existed. Yeah, he didn't know my wow. mum was pregnant, so he was never going to come find me. And so, how exactly did he find you? I found him. So I basically knew his name. So I did a people search. I wrote the same letter to, I, you know, I just had his name and I had 11 people with this name. So I wrote the same letter to all 11 people. And I got a few of those, God bless you, child. No, it's not your father, but we hope you find him. <laughs> got a few of those. Um, and, uh, but yeah, two weeks later, um, there he did. He turned up in my inbox. Incredible. And, and how, how's that been getting to know him? Well, he's he's pretty, I mean, it was great at the time. Um, it was actually, I found him in Paradise Valley in Arizona and I went to stay with him for a while. So that was another one of those great moments. We're really getting off topic here, but anyway. And uh, where he had, I arrived at the airport and he had this sign, hi Davina, it's dad, which must've been highly amusing for anyone else going through the airport at the time. <laughs> like, like, why doesn't she know? <laughs> what a fairy tale. Have you, have you, written, have you written about this? 
No. But the, the column you, you gave up, did you say? Yeah, I gave up the astrology column. I mean, I've, done, I've done various bits of writing over the years. And what do you think, how did giving up the column, do you think, coincide? Well, with... it, was, it, was, it was just the fact. I, yeah, it was because it wasn't in alignment with where I was going forward, but it was also the fact he was really anti anything mystical, spiritual. I mean, I was an absolute revelation to him on not always like there was nothing green in his fridge when I met him, you know, <laughs> like, like his idea of dinner was half a chicken each. Um, very unhealthy, very overweight and all the rest of it. So like I introduced him to green things and you know, like, like vegetables, dad, here you go. And yoga and stuff like this. Um, but the astrology column was just the fact that it really proved something. It woke him up because it was like, look, you weren't even this star sign. And this is what I wrote for the one you actually are that I found out. So I didn't know at the time, so I couldn't have made it up. And it was absolutely precedent to what the situation between he and I was. So it was just a bit of amusement that those two things came together and seemed to fit. Gosh, yeah, that is incredible. And so in no time you had him in Downward Dog. <laughs> yeah, well, it took a bit longer. I don't think Downward Dog is still like that, but at least he was breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so you spent that time in Arizona and where did you go from there? In terms of what? I guess I'm just curious about the, this particular period of your life. That, that yeah, seemed... it, was, it, was, it was tricky. And then, of course, you find out, um, like, it was all very much a honeymoon period for a while. And then you find out the deeper truths and realise that, okay, he's just human like anybody else. And maybe that isn't such a great person to be involved with. Mm. So I don't, I don't think I was... Um, it was any detriment to my life not knowing but it was nice i mean it's an interesting one from lots of psychology the biggest thing i learned from it was nature and nurture because he didn't obviously know anything about my existence and had had no involvement in my upbringing and what was fascinating is seeing him do things like certain mannerisms certain mainly mannerisms and food types and what he's interested in and go oh my god i do that oh my god that's my favorite food and it was really, it was fascinating, like little, you know, insight into really what does come from nature and nurture. Not half a chicken, though, is it? Was it no, some not sort half of, chicken, but some sort of accompaniment? Yeah, but flavor. Like I don't like, really I can't eat coleslaw. Yeah, I can't eat really super spicy food, for example, and flavors of ice cream and just mannerisms. It was odd. He'd do something and go, "Oh my god, I do that." That's really odd. Yeah, so it was quite fun from that point of view. Yeah, that's that's really trippy. Mm um how did you get into doing the astrology column because i've always been interested in astrology i've studied it i just i, I i'm a pattern reader i love patterns um so i'm also really interested in studying cross-cultural systems so like for example i've studied things like astrology numerology ching kabbalah for years and um, because but i and even like with the andean mesa um particularly the coastal region where they are and i can map all those systems onto the same thing I, I like seeing how those things kind of line up i do believe we live in a mathematical universe and how how does that manifest for for, for the layman for the layman i mean yeah how how do our star signs the time we're born affect our destiny let's say and how how's that interlinked we always with... have we always have free will I don't think it, I don't think it, I mean, I personally believe we have choice and free will. 
um, in at least not necessarily in what happens to us, but certainly in how we respond to it. So, but I think it can help with timing. I think it can help with personality development in working towards like what your gifts are or what you are probably have a predominant, um, uh, you know, what's the talent or skill in something. Mm -hmm. um, so it can it can guide you in those kind of ways. I mean, it's not like, oh, my God, yeah, on Tuesday at three o'clock, I'm going to meet this person. You know, it's not predictive in fortune telling in that way. It really helps. And it helps with one's shadows. I think we constantly have to integrate the darker side of ourselves that's always been hidden when we were programmed into being good humans and socialized into getting on. You know, we all bury our shadows at that time and then spent the rest of our lives trying to unpick them and deal with them. So and I remember you when we when we spoke earlier this this year, you were saying how you had a kind of shamanic illness when you were in Nepal, right? So perhaps everything or, or Tibet. No, it was Tibet. Yeah, it was Tibet. What what so what happened there? It wasn't. I didn't. It wasn't a shamanic illness. I I mean, I just nearly died from altitude sickness. Um, I mean, you could call that a shamanic illness, I suppose it was, it was definitely a shamanic initiation. It was like, you know, one of those situations, you know, I didn't get struck by lightning. I just got sort of nearly struck down <laughs> from altitude. Um, I was actually hitched along the highest road in the world from Gulmud in China to Lhasa in Tibet in the back of a, because it was closed. It was, it was closed. So we had to kind of, I was with a girlfriend and we had to hide in the back of this truck to get through the checkpoints to get into Tibet. Um, and we basically, I mean, I knew everything because I'm a nurse and so I was like, I knew everything about altitude sickness and all the way of get down, get down low. But of course there was no low. You're on this very, I mean, it took 47 hours to travel 1100 kilometers, just to give you an idea. So you're on this slow, long incline at minus 20, minus 30 and the altitude, I mean, I've never experienced altitude before and it just got worse and worse and worse. I mean, it was hallucinating. Uh, it's like, and it's really weird. It's like reverse altitudes, uh, reverse car sickness. So when you're kind of the cars moving, you're kind of in this state of in and out of consciousness, but you're just about all right. As soon as the car, the motion stops, then you're, you know, puking your guts up and really not well. I mean, boiling hot, frying egg on my face, swelling up, you know, really, really not okay. Thinking, because this was before mobile phones were, this was 92, so it's before mobile phones were a common thing. And it's like, okay, wow, nobody in the world knows where I am right now. I am just going to, you know, be probably dumped out of this truck on the side of the road somewhere because this guy is going to get really fed up with having a couple of dead bodies in his car soon. But anyway, made it um, and it did feel touch and go. I mean, I, I, I was at the point where I was like, OK, I, I, I'm quite happy to I feel so awful and can't hold it. I'm quite happy if I go now. I'm, I'm, you know, you do get to I do believe and I've watched it. I mean, I've experienced a lot of death in my life witnessing people die and being with them. And I do think there's a point where there is really a release. You're just happy, you know, you, you, you're, your time's there. And that would have been one that was very easy. But you managed to... No, we got through to, we got dumped rather unceremoniously out of this truck at around three in the morning in Lhasa in Tibet. And it looked like something out of a Dickens novel. I tell you, there was just packs of wild rabid dogs wandering the streets. There was nothing I recognized. I mean, it really, you know, there's no light, there's nothing. Um, and God bless Lonely Planet, you know, the, the traveler's Bible. And we found like that and we were like banging on this door, at, you know, and finally a guy came down in long johns and sort of 
put us rather unceremonious in the room with half the ceiling falling out it was freezing and just passed out for a few hours and then woke up in heaven I mean Lhasa really was like heaven blue skies sunshine Tibetan people it was just yeah it was going from hell to heaven it was lovely and back then was it possible for westerners to just make it into Tibet in such a fashion <laughs> living proof we did <laughs> I mean we that but you could get in if you had a lot of money you could come in on a Chinese tour and you were able to get in from Nepal at the time you just couldn't get in from China and I was traveling through China so it was the once we were in I, mean, I actually crossed that whole I crossed all overland Tibet and came down into Nepal after that uh but yeah you're watched i mean there was cameras there's like you know you you felt uncomfortable put it that way but nonetheless paradisical yeah i mean the, the place and the people like but you are aware of the cameras and the you know being watched and like people are nervous and all the rest of it no the patella i mean there's a couple of sites i mean i've been to i've traveled a lot and i've been to lots of you know, really wonderful places. But I have to say, um, the Patala Palace in Tibet was one of those ones that was genuinely awe-inspiring. And you just think, wow, that, that you know, just what that did to you. Like, for example, I've been to the Taj Mahal, great bit of architecture, didn't get much from it. Been to the Forbidden City, similar, but the Patala Palace is something else. And I had a great afternoon drinking chicha with the monks after we'd done the tour in the afternoon. <laughs> with is that the, the, like the butter tea? No, the chicha is the, the corn beer, which they don't have the enzyme that metabolizes alcohol. So they get completely drunk on it and giggly and fun. Whereas it doesn't, it just makes us normally have an upset stomach. Um, it doesn't really do the same thing. But uh, we had, I had a little Tibetan um, phrase book and these monk got, that is a memory that will last lot, well, forever, because it's still fresh now, 30 odd years later. It was this wonderful, um, just the monks rolling around, belly laughing at trying to say these English phrases out of this Tibetan book. They've just found that the most hilarious thing ever. It's great. Well, what were they trying to say? Were there any particular? Oh, I can't remember. Or, I can't remember the exact they got word, but it on. was just like, yeah, it was just like the pronunciation. I mean, with the teacher, they just found that highly, highly entertaining for themselves. And you've been back to Tibet since. Mm -mm. No, I travelled all the way across, but no, no, I haven't. It was beautiful. I loved it. But it's interesting because I, I don't know if that was part of my shamanic adventure because I didn't plan any of this. But it is interesting that I read some years later that the Dalai Lama um, said that the spiritual energies were really moving from Tibet to Peru. He actually said, and then, of course, that is where I ended up doing all my shamanic training was in Peru. Not that I planned that or because he said it or anything like that. It just happened that way. And it is interesting, like Tibet, having crossed its landscape, it feels like you're on the moon. It's a very lunar landscape, but still mm. at you know, crazy altitude. And Peru is also at that crazy altitude, but it's much softer. Like when I walk on Pachamama in Peru, it feels soft under my feet. I, I, I feel really welcomed into the belly of the earth there, where in Tibet you don't in the same way. So how did you make it from yeah Tibet as a nurse traveling with a friend and then having this sickness to mm. doing shamanic training in Peru yeah, because... several years later? Yeah, because basically, I don't know, like, <laughs> I can't give you a sort of defining art, but there was something in that process that woke up a part of me and then teachers just started arriving and different, you know, it just, my life changed from that moment completely. Like when I got back from then, um, 
I can't remember the exact, I think it was feng shui was what I got into first. That was the first I'd always been like, oh, but had had very normal jobs, which I just didn't fit into very well. Um, and always had this other interest, you know, I've always been interested in metaphysics, theology, um, esoterics on the side. So I'd already studied those things and then teachers just started up and it happened pretty organically. You first got into feng shui, did you say? Is that kind of the arrangement of stuff in, in a room? It is. It is. Very, way more powerful than the awful um, plethora of uh, dreadful head, you know, tabloid headlines of keep your loose seat down and, you know, whatever that happened in the mid-90s over that. So, yeah, have you got like one feng shui tip to, to, to leave us with? Yes. So connect with your guardian spirit you know walls have ears talk to your home i mean seriously make a connection make a relationship with you know the bricks and mortar that you inhabit is not a inanimate pile of objects it has a living spirit your home has a living spirit so connect to the living spirit of your home ask what your home needs from you and ask how your home is supporting you if you develop that relationship that it really can become a very powerful ally Amazing. Well, thanks so much for the conversation, Davina. Pleasure. Thank you for having me.